Welcome to The First 10 Years, a career podcast focused on learning from our past to propel us into the future. I'm your host, Danielle Doolin. I'm a communications professional, career and finance writer, and a career changer. But most importantly, I'm fascinated by work and how it fits into the bigger picture of life. I love to ask questions and want to know everything there is to know about how to have a successful and fulfilling career. On the first 10 years podcast, I'll reflect on my career journey thus far and invite other professionals and experts into the conversation so we can learn together how to turn the first 10 years of our career into a foundation for our ideal future. Hello, and welcome to episode nine of the first 10 years podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Doolin, and I'm so excited for today's conversation. But as it stands today, we are one week out from Christmas. So I hope you are taking some time to enjoy the holidays, whether you're celebrating Christmas or you just celebrated Hanukkah or Kwanzaa, whatever you're acknowledging this time of year, I hope you are taking that time for yourself to enjoy your friends and family and hopefully have a chance to relax and recharge before the start of the new year. I know I'll be doing that next week. I am taking next week off. Monday falls on Christmas, so I'll be taking a week off and I'll be back on January 1st with another episode. I'll be back with a solo episode, so stay tuned for that. But I am so excited to be closing out the year with this conversation with Susan Chen. So Susan is a Vedic meditation teacher, and I'll share a little bit more about her in a second. But I learned so much in this episode about this specific style of meditation. Um, I have been dabbling in meditation for the past couple of years. Um, I've found a lot of value in apps like Peloton that offers meditation or Calm and different resources that make meditation feel more accessible to people that may not know much about it or need some help with it. And it's really valuable. Anytime that I've actually sat down and meditated, I feel great and it really helps clear my head and focus me and I should do it more regularly. Um, but I'm not going to hold myself to that standard at this point in my life. I know I have a lot going on, but anytime I've done it, I've loved it. And I loved hearing Susan's story, um, and learning more about her specific style of meditation and how it can benefit Um, really high achieving professionals and busy professionals, just like I'm sure you are. We all have a lot going on in our lives. And she, she shows it as a tool that you can't afford not to do it because it helps really give you that clarity and that peace of mind um, to take on the rest of your day. So this was a really great conversation. I think it's really interesting if you are exploring and starting the meditation practice in the new year, or you've been considering dabbling in meditation. I think this makes it really accessible and it was really great to learn more. So let me share more about Susan. Susan Chen is a former Wall Street research analyst and portfolio manager. So she knows about the daily grind. Having spent over a decade building a successful career, she felt overworked and overstimulated. Despite her natural optimism, Susan noticed that her brightness had faded. In 2014, Susan learned Vedic meditation, and before long, she began to feel present and relaxed, and all the years of pushing and stressing lifted. The most surprising aspect of Susan's experience in meditation was that, contrary to popular belief, incorporating meditation into her life didn't change her ambition. Practicing Vedic meditation made her remaining years on Wall Street even better in every way. Susan's meditation practice showed her that not everyone needs to take the monk's path to feel happy. In 2017, after two years of studying and immersing herself in a 12-week training program in India with Tom Knowles, Susan was inducted as a Vedic meditation teacher in the highest order. 
Today, Susan loves teaching people with big lives and watching their busyness shift from a grind to an enjoyable, fulfilling adventure. Susan splits her time between New York City and Los Angeles and conducts retreats around the world. Susan graduated from Harvard with a BA in 2002. This was such a good conversation. I know it's a little bit on the longer side, but I could have talked to Susan all day and I was so interested in learning more about her experience going from Wall Street to meditation and how she's helped other busy professionals. So um, I can't wait to share this conversation with you. So without further ado, here's Susan Chen. joining me today on the first 10 years podcast. Hi, Danielle. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to learn more about you and your career and your expertise. But before we begin, I'd love to kind of intro you to our audience and talk about your first 10 years of your career, starting with what you wanted to be when you grew up. (laughs) I love this question. And to be honest, when I was young, I always told my mom that I wanted to be a shop owner, uh, that where I could sell coffee and flowers at the same time. I love that. <laughs> I want to go there. <laughs> I know. And it's so funny because, you know, the work that I do now actually involves a lot of flowers, which I know you're like, meditation and flowers? I don't get it, but I can tell you more about it later. And I still really, really love my coffee. So <laughs> I feel like I've kind of achieved my childhood dream for sure. That's amazing. <laughs> That's what you want to be when you grew up. So tell me about mm-hmm. how you started your career. Did you go to college? What what did that look like after high school for you? Yes. So, you know, I, I graduated from Harvard in 2002. And, um, you know, looking back on the time that I was there, at least for me, it kind of felt like you either went to law school, you went to med school, you went to, you know, you started on Wall Street or like you moved home with your parents. (laughs) That kind of seemed like the four options that I was seeing out there. And I kind of quickly eliminated any more schooling because of the testing component. And my sister actually had started her career in finance. And, you know, what she said to me was, just try it out for a couple of years. It'll get you in New York City. You can be with me for a little while. And um, let's see how it goes. And so um, I did an internship uh, when I was a junior in college and had just a great time. And that's really the path that I pursued. You know, I can't say that, as you know, I wanted to <laughs> have a flower and coffee shop growing up. So it's not like I woke up, you know, like you know, I was born like out of the womb reading like The Motley Fool. <laughs> it wasn't like that. But what I really did like about my experiences, even as an intern, was like really interesting people, very intelligent, and they seem to just spend a lot of their days solving really interesting problems. And, um, and so that's what I did. And so right after college, I moved myself to New York City And I joined Morgan Stanley on a trading desk in 2002. And so um, I was like the youngest analyst on the desk, and I was covering companies that were either going bankrupt or already bankrupt. So the same desk that operates today would be like analyzing the financial statements of WeWork, you know, or or FTX and seeing what the fallout of, you know, some of their loans or their their private equity would be faring out in the marketplace and buying and selling um, based off of that information. So that's how I spent the first two years of my career. And it was 
it was amazing. It was crazy. I think I worked a hundred hours a week. Wow, I believe <laughs> on it. On average. Um, and it was really, it was, it was fascinating. You know, it's um the one thing that I really, really loved about working in such a big environment is that we had an entire analyst class. So I was the only sort of 22-year-old on my desk, but there are all these other 22-year-olds dotted all around the firm. And, um, you know, we got to know each other well. And, you know, when you work so many hours with people, (laughs) they kind of become your best friends too. And so now as I look back on it, you know, gosh, it's like 20 years later, um, some of my very best friends came from that period of my life. And, you know, one of them is now like the CEO of an amazing, you know, B Corp certified fashion brand. Um, and the Another great friend of mine is now the CFO of Morgan Stanley. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, I've gone off to do like something really new and exciting in this, this chapter of my career too. So, you know, I think a little, a lot about, and I don't know if you've come across this when you're thinking about like your first 10 years and, um, but you know, during COVID there was like a gap of time of like two or three years where kind of like the fresh out of college, you know, work experience was, has totally been changed. And, you know, you had a bunch of new college grads kind of, you know, getting their feet wet in, a new industry without having like the face-to-face, without having kind of like the late nights and the camaraderie that you would have in these bigger corporate environments. And um, I think about that sometimes, like, wow, what would I have been like if I didn't have like all of my friendships from the first few years right. I, was, I was there? That's so interesting to think about. And I've, I've heard people say in that Gen Z and some of the younger generations want to be in the office, I think for that exact point, because they started or maybe even finished out their college career virtually. Like that's a very mm-hmm. different experience to to start your whole career remote, just at home, like possibly at your parents' house, get your kitchen table. Like <laughs> totally. it's a very different experience. I had a very similar experience to you where I started a firm and you started with like an incoming class mm-hmm. of people all at the same time. So you you got really close with all of those people that you're working with. And that's very different yeah. than what it would have been like starting during the pandemic. I can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I look back on those years, it's like such a twin edged sword, you know, it's like, I love them, but you know, as with the passage of time, you tend to gold dust a lot <laughs> of your experiences too. Um, <laughs> but I loved it. It was so fun. And, you know, you like, you have these reunions with your old coworkers and it's as if not, like no time has passed, right? Mm-hmm. Like still giving each other so much grief about just the little fun isms and quirks that you have going on in your life. And um, yeah, it was a very, very, very sweet time in my life being at Morgan Stanley. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. They promoted me. And then one day they said, hey, you know, we kind of want to do the same thing. But we want to do this in in Asia, in Hong Kong, and we know that you're native. Um, you were born and raised in Taipei, and you are fluent in the language. And I said, well, I'm really fluent in, like, how to speak to my grandmother <laughs> <laughs> and, like, you know, like, hang out with my cousins. But in terms of, like, business Mandarin, I'm, like, I'm proficient. Mm-hmm. I could probably get very proficient, but, like, best not to – 
you know, rely on my reading of legal documents or anything right. like that. <laughs> and so I went there with sort of like my New York training and I was there for three years and we were able to, you know, build a really fun desk. I traveled like all over Asia working on cool deals and, um, and yeah, again, you know, Morgan Stanley was just so good to me at that time and again, was still working crazy, crazy hours, but was I was learning a lot and, you know, venturing around a whole new part of the world. Um, and yeah, learn, learning a lot at the same time and making great friends. That's amazing. So where did you finish off mm. that first 10 year mark of your career? Were you at Morgan Stanley the whole time? No, I wasn't. So I came back from Asia and I kind of got caught up in the, you know, the global financial crisis of like 2007, 2008, and 2009. So I came back on an investment desk at Morgan Stanley and that desk actually was featured, you know, in that Ryan Gosling movie, The Big Short. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's a fun fact. <laughs> I know, right? It was actually really funny. Like we know the guy that um, Ryan Gosling was playing in the movie. And he was like, I cannot tell you how flattered I am <laughs> that Ryan Gosling, like they chose Ryan Gosling to play me. Um, but he wasn't an employee of Morgan Stanley. He was an employee at another firm. But yeah, like there wasn't one investment bank that wasn't completely swept up in it. And so in 2008, you know, talk about the first 10 years having like big, big changes in your career, I found myself getting laid off twice in six months. Wow. And, you know, given sort of like my profile at the firm, given the fact that I had always been put up for promotions early, like I was completely gobsmacked. Mm -hmm. I was like, can't believe they just fired me. Um, and they, you know, the HR person was like, well, they didn't fire you. They actually fired like 30 people from your desk. And it was really a layoff. And so what I did was I went and I landed my landed myself at a hedge fund, which then again also got swept up in this whole, you know, downturn. And, um, you know, I kind of made the decision of, you know, I've saved some money. There's no one hiring right now. So let me just take a five or six month break. And I just traveled a bunch. Um, and I found myself on a really fun uh, scuba diving expedition in Palau in Micronesia, where I decided to stay for a, a long period of time, much longer than probably my parents wanted mm -hmm. me to be there for. I was just like loving the weather, loving the people, loving the food. And I love scuba diving. And I had almost forgot that I needed to look for a job. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one day, I uh, in with the incoming food, so I was I was living on a dive boat, basically doing some diving, and <clears throat> with all of the produce that was coming off of the mainland to the dive boat. Um, they also brought like a printed email and they said, this is for Susan. And I was like, gosh, who would be sending me an email? The only, per the only people who have this email address of this dive company I'm with is my parents. And, but it was an email from my first boss at Morgan Stanley. Wow. And she, he was, and in all caps, he was like, I have been looking for you everywhere. I finally <laughs> had to call your mother. And he said, um, he said, you need to come back immediately. You know, um, some old friends are starting a new investment desk at an Australian firm. Um, and they want you to be part of their research team. And so I read, I read the, I read the email. It was a letter. It was kind of sweet. And I was like, all right, I guess it's time to head home. So I went back. 
back to New York City, you know, set up a new desk um, at a wonderful, wonderful firm called Macquarie Capital. It's like one, it's like the biggest uh, firm in, uh, in Australia for investment banking. And it was like a reunion of a lot of my friends that, and some old bosses that I knew from Morgan Stanley. And that's how I wound up um, finishing out my first 10 years on Wall Street. Um, and it was a really fun time too, because I was coming in, I was like a vice president, then they promoted me to head of research. And I was kind of ticking all of the boxes and just feeling a lot of professional success. But it was also the most high stress, high anxiety time of my life that I had ever experienced too. And, you know, I know that for you, um, you know, you talk a lot about work-life balance, right? And how, you know, we feel like it's, it's not so much to ask to be really great at what you do and love what you're doing and be able to sleep soundly at night yes. <laughs> while you're doing it. And it, you know, for me, that was, I was starting to feel like in the last, you know, 10, towards like year eight, year nine, it was like all of that accumulation of travel and fatigue and those like 100-hour work days in the, in the beginning of the first 10 years was like really starting to catch up with me. Um, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't find meditation until year 12 of my career. But I was like, I always think, I was like, what if I found it earlier? Um, and that's why, you know, I am really quite passionate about wanting to teach um, professionals as early as they can in their career so they don't face, um, so they're not on the brink of burnout and overwhelm and, and, and so many of these sort of like success-induced <laughs> pathologies yes. that we have that we carry around that we don't even know we're carrying around. Absolutely. I want to pause for a moment and go back. You graduated from Harvard. That's a really big deal. <laughs> Were you going did. were you going for finance? Was that always the path that you thought you wanted to take? No, it wasn't. Um, well, you know what? I can't really say that. So um, I was a transfer student out of UC Berkeley into Harvard. And, you know, I was born and raised in Taipei, went to an international school there. So it actually didn't really matter if I went to like a state school or a private school. It was still going to cost my parents like a boatload of money to send me really anywhere. And so my sister had graduated from Harvard and um, I was waitlisted there. I didn't get in when I applied and I had a choice of going to Berkeley or going to another, um, I'll save the name because I don't ever like to you know, I don't ever like to 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 uh, discuss unfavorably, you know, institutions that I only have a superficial level of understanding of. But I was accepted to another university, and there were some graduates from that university who were like, "Do not go there." Oh, interesting. Do not go there. It's a very tough environment, and there's like zero fun. You know, if you want to have fun. Please don't go there. <laughs> and this is from, you know, some of my sister's friends. I went to Berkeley and my mom, my my dad settled me in and he was just like, there are no walls. He's like, people are just partying all the time. Like, what is this? This is what state schools are all about. And so I just said, you know what, dad, this is a really nice place. I really like it here. Um, but it's, it's your money. Mm. It's your money. And um, I'm very fortunate that you are paying for most of this. So like, if you want me to go somewhere else, 
I'll go. And so he said, I just want you to apply and let's see where it goes. And so, of course, they accepted me and you don't really say no to a Harvard acceptance. And I went there, but I had already started taking a lot of business administration classes at Cal and they didn't have a similar program um, because, you know, it's a liberal arts college and like I know you had an accounting degree, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and like, if I wanted to take accounting at Harvard, I would have needed to go to MIT to take an accounting class. And, um, so I was like, well, they don't have anything that's similar. Um, and so I wound up taking a lot of history classes and a lot of government classes. I was really interested in, um, international studies and international history. And so that's what I graduated with. Um, but every summer I was kind of inching myself closer to, a Wall Street career through internships and and self-study. Oh, that's so interesting. I want to go back to something else that you mentioned about taking a career break. And I know in your situation, it was more so not by choice. It was more the economy, but I don't think that's something that people talk about as often. I think it's becoming more popular or more accepted to take a career break for sabbaticals or just time off for burnout or because you're a new parent and you want to take that time yeah. off. It's just, what. how do you look back at that period in your life? It sounds like it was a really enjoyable time. Do you think your trajectory of your career would look different if you didn't have that that time? Yeah, you know, it's such a, it's such a great question. And, you know, the time off wasn't even really my idea. I remember, um, you know, after having spent, it would have been like six years, right? You know, just keeping really busy and working so hard and you know, I know that one of the the questions that you like that you ask a lot of your guests on this podcast is like, what is your definition of success and how has that changed over time? And it's like when you're an analyst on Wall Street, you're like, my definition of success is like promotion after promotion and raise after raise. And it was like the literal, you know, um, uh, hamster wheel that you're on that you kind of didn't know how to get off of. And I remember when I was was not working and I was like, well, you have to keep up with the markets because what if you have an interview? You want to be prepared. And I found myself like day trading in my studio apartment in New York City, like listening to CNBC, like like no job, no interviews because no one was hiring. And I remember my my really close friend at the time, who's now the CFO of Morgan Stanley, her name is Sharon Yeshaya, God bless her sweetheart. She said to me, she's like, what are you doing day trading, like $5 in your, <laughs> in your studio? She's like, it's not going to make a difference. Just go out and go have fun. Just go have fun. And you'll know when it's time. She's like, we all go through these cycles. We've seen it before. There will be a hiring wave and just make sure that you're back by the time the hiring wave come, you know, commences. And, you know, I really do feel that, you know, nature or higher self or universe, you know, whatever you want to call this larger evolutionary force that's always in support of us does, does create perfect and divine timing for us, right? And so when I think about taking breaks and taking sabbaticals, Um, I really do think that sometimes it is important for us to pause and just let nature organize the best possible experiences for us. Because when we push, you know, when we're so rigidly attached to like timings and outcomes, sometimes that can prevent us from making the best decision for ourselves 
both professionally as well as from a personal perspective as well. And so, you know, from one perspective, you would have, you know, somebody could say, I, I think Susan kind of stayed in Palau for like weeks longer <laughs> than she should have. But in from the other perspective, it was like, I think I needed to be on the boat until the rest of that team could get assembled and get their stuff together so they could call me, right? right. Um, and so I do think that above and beyond sort of like taking a break, it's just a giving yourself that grace of knowing that like things don't have to happen a certain way. Like I think those two layoffs allowed me to get knocked off the conveyor belt, mm -hmm. you know, of Wall Street life to really just do things a little bit differently. And um, I think a big reason for my success in the later part of the 10 years where I was like the youngest female senior managing director at the firm, you know, um, I was running, you know, a team of a dozen analysts and I was managing, you know, mil hundreds of millions of dollars. I think the reason why I found success is because I decided to do things a little bit differently with my life. Um, I didn't, I didn't want to go to, you know, like the bars and, um, do happy hours. Cause at that time I was like battling my stress and my insomnia so much. I was like, I have to go to like a sound healing class. Tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I didn't get my yoga in. I have to sleep. I have to try and sleep early. And so I just kind of decided that I was going to make my mark and create relationships and do things a little bit different, differently. And um, I think that with the advent of like platforms like this, you know, the first 10 years, and also just being able to see creators and entrepreneurs showcase how people can feel, can, can experience success and also be very fulfilled and also give to the world in such amazing ways it shows us that there's not just one way to do something. And I think that, you know, for so many of us, we we grow up in the first 10 years of our career, because I really do feel like it's like a coming of age moment that like, oh my goodness, I my career path has to look like either my friends, my siblings, my bosses. Um, but there's so many great ways for, for self-expression, even within a corporate environment. And it really wasn't until I embraced that, um, that, that I really feel like I stepped into my own. You make such a good point. Cause I think a big part of finding success is letting go of those expectations that we, we step into our career with. I mean, I can speak from experience that I, I came in with a five-year plan and two years in it completely went to the wind. It was just, it didn't go at all how I expected and how I wanted it to go. But as soon as I started letting go of that expectations of what, like you said, what it should be, or this is what my friends are doing. This is what I'm supposed to do and started doing what felt more natural and authentic to me and finding my own path is when I started to find that fulfillment in the work that I do. So it's, you, it's really hard to retrain your brain and kind of turn that side off of like, it's okay to do like stray off the beaten path. Um, because this is the path that I'm meant to be on. It's totally, yeah. And, you know, sometimes some, you know, it's, I feel like nature is always speaking to us, you know, and nature doesn't really speak in code. And in the beginning days, it's like a little whisper. It's like, hey, maybe think about doing this. And, you know, you're like, go away. I have my, 
I have I have my five year plan. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then it's like speaking louder and louder and louder until at some point, if you begin to hold on so tight and still get dragged, you know, by the feet in terms of like forward progress, because we're always progressing forward. It's whether or not like, are you actually going to move with <laughs> with the flow of the river? Are you going right. to try and swim up upstream for your whole life while still moving down the river? Um, sometimes, you know, nature just has to kind of smack you up against the head. Like for me, you know, it's like, oh, you know, you're, you, you want to always be successful and you want to get everything right. Well, let me, let me take away what was kind of defining you in terms of like your ideas of success and identity. And let me take it away from you twice in six months for you to really evaluate, you know, what, what makes a difference in your life and living. And that's why I think about a lot of these moments as like really like just true gifts that I that I was given, not because I was able to take a six-month sabbatical, but because I was able to let go of like I have to work at a place like Morgan Stanley because it's, you know, the best place to work to being like, oh, this like quirky Australian bank wants to do something fun. Like they have cool accents. They like to exercise. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Australian bankers are like very well known for like all being like Ironman athletes and stuff. Um, So I was like cool company culture, you know, like cool accents. I I like to visit Australia. Like let's go do it. And um, and yeah, so so it's been a really, really fun journey. So how would you define success today? I would say that success today is defined, and this is what I tell my clients all the time that I work with on the meditation now, is feeling fulfilled and energetic while having a calm and regulated nervous system. I love that. I don't think a lot of us have that (laughs) on on a consistent basis. And maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but... (laughs) Yeah. And it's one of these things that feel very, very elusive and... um, and it's one of these things that we, and I think there is something ingrained in us that, you know, um, you know, no pain, no gain, right? Mm. Like you can sleep when you're dead. <laughs> like there right. are all these really interesting like quotes that we, and phrases that we kind of have like ingrained as, as truths. But, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, um, feeling like you are calm and have a regulated nervous system is actually a very, very simple formula of giving yourself regular doses of deep rest. You know, I think that for so many of us, we equate relaxation to rest and they're very, very different things. And I kind of found this out through a very long-winded way of trying to deal with my chronic stress and my anxiety. You know, um, I would say in years 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, what I was finding is that I was um, I was very, very success- successful in a large part due to my high-functioning anxiety. And anxiety is this, this really interesting thing, right? Because when you're anxious specifically about work, what do you tend to do? Over-prepare. <laughs> rehearse many times, work more. And it's kind of this weird thing because then when you do a great job, people congratulate you for your anxiety, basically, right? And you're like, wait a second, now I have to keep on going and it kind of makes the anxiety even worse. And so as a result of 
this, you know, and no one knows it came from the anxiety because people who are really successful are also really good mm-hmm. <laughs> at masking their anxiety. Um, I wound up going on this, you know, very long journey of looking for all of the different ways in which I could calm my nervous system. And, you know, this is like years before the holistic psychologist came on the scene and, you know, Dr. Hyman and, you know, meditation was not even like a thing. Um, Like it was something that people did without telling anyone because you're kind of embarrassed and you didn't want people to think you're like a hippie. And so I was trying all of these different things to try and help with the stress and the migraines and the anxiety and nothing ever had long lasting relief. And what I came to find out through the long way is that many things that we think we do to try and rest the body really are nice pause breaks from like the ever repeating known of our busy work day and then our busy times as, you know, parents or even, you know, those who are single looking for, you know, balance in their life. Um, Those things that we were doing weren't particularly restful, meaning for so many of us, we're like, let's take a night off, like self-care night, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) let's take a bubble bath and Netflix and order sushi, um, or maybe, you know, get a sitter for the kids and go out and enjoy um, a nice meal with our partner. Um, But all of those things from the perspective of like powering down the physiology don't really do anything. And what we know is that the physiology from like a nervous system perspective it needs to get taken down a certain number of notches before accumulated stresses can get released. So there's no amount of vacationing. There's no amount of therapy. There's no amount of like ayahuasca ceremonies that anyone can sit in um, that will help us get ahead of the stress that we're accumulating day in and day out. And we do receive this nice power down in um in terms of our nervous system when we sleep, but due to the sheer number of demands that we have in our life, there's not enough sleep that we can ever take in to throw off all of the stress that's coming in in every single day. And so once I kind of figured out this equation after I learned Vedic meditation, I was like, oh my gosh, all those years of therapy, (laughs) all those years of like, you know, um, vitamin infusions and (laughs) magnesium injections and I mean, I was getting Botox in my neck and, you know, in the base of my head to help with migraines because it was an experimental thing that if you could like freeze your, I guess, muscles or nerve endings, that you wouldn't feel the effects of like chronic headaches and chronic migraines. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, all of those things that I was trying was never doing anything really to reset the balance of rest because that's the only successful and reliable antidote to stress. And so that's why I feel so passionate about sharing with busy professionals this style of meditation. And it's a very unique style of meditation that reliably and systematically builds in so much deep, deep rest in the physiology that every day despite the big demands that you have in your life and the, you know, um, the high impact value of our lives, we're still waking up with less stress in the body, more rest, more adaptation energy. And what that means is that we can be more creative and productive in our workplace and then also way more present for our lives outside of work too. 
you know, I work with a lot of working moms. Um, and, you know, we talk a lot about this, like the three shifts of the day, right? You have the morning shift with the family. And then you have the second shift where, you know, you're like, you know, uh, uh, taking numbers and, you know, collecting the dollars. And, you know, no, the third shift comes where you have to, you know, be present for your family. And it's a shame sometimes that when we feel like our company or our profession gets the best and freshest part of us and our family tends to get the scraps. And I just feel super passionate about giving people this tool where in the morning you can top up on your rest and your energy, right? Because a lot of us don't sleep that well at night. And then you can go about your day and just feel energetic and productive and something that might have taken you two hours may only take you one. And those 10 things on your to-do list with this rested energy and creativity, you're like, well, actually only four of those things matter, right? So you scratch out the rest. And then you do your afternoon meditation to kind of top up that energy level and that third shift of your day is like so fresh, you're so present, and you can give your all to whether it's your family or your side hustle or, you know, whatever it is that you want, however it is you want to spend the rest of your evening. Um, it's totally possible. And it's just a very sweet, simple equation <laughs> of resting the body deeply. I want to get into more to Vedic meditation and what exactly it is. But before we do, help me connect the dots from when you first found this meditation, you said in year 12, to where you are today and what you do currently. Yes. So uh, in year 12, I stumbled upon Vedic meditation. Um, I, I, I feel like I was like wellness junkie number zero. <laughs> um, because, and, you know, living in New York City, it's super easy to be a junkie uh, of like an avid connoisseur of really anything because everything is available here. And I tried so many different styles of meditation techniques and yoga. And like, honestly, at that point, I thought yoga and meditation were kind of the same thing. And I stumbled upon Vedic meditation because I had a friend who thought that it could really help me because, um, didn't matter, you know, what accolades or what um, great wins I was having at work. Um, I was only sleeping um, about two hours a night before waking up, and it would take me typically another hour to fall back asleep. And, you know, after sort of like feeling like I had, I was like wrestling myself all night between sleep and wakefulness, I would wake up in the morning with my hands clenched in a fist because that was like how much anxiety I was holding in my body. And when I opened my fist, I could see kind of like the whites of the creases of my skin. Wow. That's how much I was holding in my body. And it was really hard to talk about too, you know, because when you're like, running a team and you're a senior executive, like the mental health conversation these days in the big corporations is amazing to me. Like I just get so excited when I hear about people bringing in these conversations and when, when HR companies call me to lead courses within the companies because at that time, you know, there was barely anything you know, for us and, you know, getting sort of like an extended time off even, um, you know, for parental leave was a really big deal. And um, so I found Vedic meditation and within the first two days of practicing it, I began to sleep through the night and fast forward within four to six weeks of practicing it, um, 
I stopped taking my migraine medication, which was a really, really, really big deal in my life. And I started to trade off all of the other modalities and the retreats and, um, you know, everything that I kind of was throwing at for the issues. And I started to spend my time really evaluating and understanding this very rich knowledge base from which Vedic meditation comes. And that's how I wound up spending my third shift um, after, you know, a long day at work was going to group meditation, studying with my teacher and, um, you know, years 12, 13, 14, 15 was really me like almost unknowingly um, apprenticing to be a meditation teacher. And uh, there was an opportunity that came up um, at work and You know, we can kind of call it an opportunity, but I really do feel like it was a gift that was revealed to me through my meditation practice where, you know, when you're in the present moment, you tend not to get as surprised about things that happen because, again, like we were talking about, you're not so rigidly attached to the five-year plan or how things are you are supposed to be. So it's kind of like your senses are so grounded in the present that you can pay attention to subtle things like what people are saying, what they're not saying, <laughs> um, dyna- like interpersonal dynamics. And I was starting to see a shift in the, in the communications of my company and my team and to, you know, take a long story and condense it for the purposes of our conversation. I found myself kind of creating um, a very graceful exit for myself um, in year 14 or 15 of of my career. And I basically left my company um, having settled all of my team members and teammates who reported into me either to business school or to other um, to, to other funds and to other job opportunities. And I took the following year to go to India and learn all about this technique that had really transformed my life. And so, you know, fast forward seven years later, like I had always said, like I'm never closing the door on finance because I just loved, I loved my time there. I love the friendships that I made and I think the work is super interesting. And so never say never, but it's been seven years since I've left and um, I'm still here teaching meditation full time. That's amazing. So explain to everyone what Vedic meditation is and why it's different from like what you typically consider meditation or if you're using like the Calm app or some of the more like mainstream ways to introduce someone to meditation. Yeah, I would say Vedic meditation is like an advanced meditation that you don't need to be an expert to do. It actually, I I actually think it works best for beginners um, who may not have like a preconceived notion of what meditation is, but in reality, it works for everybody because I totally thought I knew what meditation was all about and I was able to get it really quickly. Um, It's a 20 minute twice a day program and it's completely different from other styles of meditation because there's no focus or uh, focus, force, or concentration required. You know, I hear so much that like, oh, I can't ever force my mind to be still, so I could never be good at meditation. Or I have a monkey mind and I could never, I can't even close my eyes for two minutes. How could you, how could I possibly meditate for 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon? 
And what Vedic meditation says is like, yes, you know, the mind is a very, very busy place and, and it can tend to feel quite chaotic if it's bouncing and reflecting off of a very, of a very stressed foundational physiology. So what we do in Vedic meditation is we introduce a second element, which is a sound form, a personalized mantra for everyone who practices. And you can think about the mantra as a really beautiful orienting device. And because it's matched to you, when you repeat it silently inside meditation, it has a really soothing and harmonizing effect that begins to settle you from a cellular level and brings you into a natural state of calm. So it's not like you're fighting any of the other thoughts in your mind, but this mantra or the sound is like another thought that is infinitely more charming to your awareness than all of the other thoughts. And because it's bringing you inwards, it acts like a handrail. Like if you think about you're going down an escalator from like, you know, all of like the busyness of the mind into like the powering down of that calm, still place deep inside, it's kind, it, it acts like a handrail to take you to those quieter states of awareness. And so people who come to learn Vedic meditation will, will say like, I can't believe it's this easy. I, you know, it's the easiest style of meditation that I've ever done. I look forward to my meditations. And, you know, I've taught over a thousand people now to meditate. I have not yet found a person who hasn't been able to meditate successfully, even those, you know, my busy executive clients who like are completely incredulous about the practice, but they saw a friend who had massive transformation. So they come and find me. Um, and so I would say that it's um, the easiest style of meditation that I've ever tried. Um, and it's also the most powerful and the most effective because we know that there's a mind and body connection because it's really two parts of one system. And so when you begin to quiet down the mind in that really natural and easy way, the body also begins to quieten down into that very, very settled state of awareness that we talked about before. And when you rest the body in this very specific and deep way, a lifetime of accumulated stresses will begin to release and purify from the body in every single meditation session. And so unlike other styles of meditation or relaxation, like you know, a sound bath or um, a gong bath or or even like time in an in infrared sauna, which like can actually feel quite relaxing. Um, it has the effect of carrying over those feelings of bliss and contentment into the 23 hours of your day, simply because you're not fighting the um, you're not fighting the effects of stress and fatigue and overwhelm every day right? You know, we use these, this beautiful luscious brain that we have every day and unbeknownst to us, a lot of the time we're, we're using it to process, you know, stress accumulation, which is why sometimes we can catch ourselves in like repetitive thought loops, um, patterns of thinking that might feel a little bit more negating, right? To our happiness. And it's not because like our brains are broken. I mean, that was really my experience for like 10 years of my life. It's because like we're stressed and when the body is really stressed, the mind reflects the body. And so, um, you know, this is really what Vedic meditation offers and having tried 
I don't know, a student recently asked me, like, how many styles of meditation did you try before you landed on this? And I could count off the top of my head with the passage of time, like at least 13 different types of meditation. (laughs) And this is even before like apps were really a thing. Um, And Vedic meditation was definitely the thing that that moved the needle in my life. So where do those mantras come from? Is that one something that you create yourself or is it something that you learn like through a teacher? Yeah, so you learn through a qualified teacher of Vedic meditation. And um, Vedic meditation comes from um, a very, very ancient uh, body of knowledge called Veda. V-E-D-A is the Sanskrit word for knowledge. And, you know, it's the knowledge of the universal truths of life. And I always like to say that Veda comes from the land that we now call India, but it doesn't belong to only the Vedic culture or to the culture of India. These universal truths can be found at the basis and the foundation of all major religions, of all major, you know, tribal people and the cultures of tribal people who really just have these beautiful observations about the patterns of nature and life, the ways in which cause and effect are happening in life, and how as you know, a human and an individual in life, we can use this knowledge to bring greater happiness into our own lives. And so it just so happens that the Vedic culture has been super good at preserving this be- this beautiful body of universal of universal truths. And it's from that body of knowledge that these mantras come. And that was a big part of my training when I went to India for that year to train to become a Vedic meditation teacher. And um, it's always a great, at the beginning of each course, we start with a gratitude ceremony that I perform in Sanskrit. And um, it's a really beautiful tune and I love singing it, but that's not the reason I do it. I do it so I can remind myself that, you know, this is not Susan Chen meditation that this is a meditation practice that is steeped um, in history. It's, you know, we meet it with a lot of reverence and that it's my troth to the tradition that I continue to teach it in this really pure way. And that's where all of the mantras come from. Amazing. And you say you work a lot Mm -hmm. with working professionals and I would like to survive some of the pushback might be, I don't have time for that. If it's 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon, how how does that work or how do you recommend people fit that in or like what advice can you give for someone who wants to incorporate this but maybe it feels like it's not possible yes yeah and you know some of this advice is going to be relevant for um your listeners who don't even practice meditation or like just want to i don't know cultivate a new morning habit whether it's like morning pages or journaling or breath work whatever Um, The best advice that I have to give to anyone is like get up earlier than you normally would, right? Because like the morning time is your time. It's your time and you, um, there's a lot less risk of somebody getting into your Slack (laughs) or getting into your emails or your text messages or your DMs or whatever to kind of like blow up your your self-care routine. Um, And specifically for Vedic meditation, the big carrot that I give to all my clients is for every minute that you are you are closing your eyes to practice Vedic meditation, you are receiving five minutes of sleep equivalent rest. 
That's what the wow. that's what the science shows. And so even if you're waking up to 20 minutes earlier, you're receiving a hundred minutes of sleep equivalent rest. So you're still netting out on top, right? Um, and the beauty of it is, is that you're building up your reserve of rest and adaptation energy. So everything in your life in that day in which you're meditating just feels a lot easier, just feels way easier. And you feel like you can move through life with a, with a w- from the perspective of being very solutions-oriented <laughs> instead of being like, oh, no, you know, like how am I going to get through this day? Like as a meditator, we don't really carry that with us anymore. It's like, you know, there are changes of expectations all the time and like I'm super equipped to handle it. So that takes care of the morning meditation. The afternoon meditation is, you know, we catch as catch can and just do our best to do it. You know, the meditation practices that you're going to commit to or really any self-care practices that you're going to commit to, I think need to satisfy like two criteria. Number one, we need to, you know, obviously see that it has good effects, right? Because like none of us, like none of us would go work out if we didn't see a change in our cardiovascular ability or like, I don't know, like change in body fat or whatever goals you were hoping to receive from the workout. You know, things stayed exactly the same. We would probably like fire our trainer (laughs) and get a new one. Um, So the same thing with meditation, right? It's like, is it giving you... Um, the relief or the benefits in your life that you're looking for. Like that's the one thing to like sticking with any habit. And the second one is how good is this practice at systematically and reliably giving me these benefits? And, you know, for so many people who try and do meditation on their own, it's like a little bit hit or miss. The first time I had a deep meditation was actually at the end of of a yoga class. And it was like the deepest place I'd ever gone. And I was like, oh my God, this feels so good. I've been waiting for this relief for my whole life. And I wound up like following this yoga teacher around New York City for the next five years, like a straight up stalker. <laughs> I was like, you're the one who give, gave me that good feeling. So like, oh, you're gonna, you're at the Equinox on Monday and then you're at Jiva Mukti on Tuesday and then you teach at this random place on Wednesday. And I was following her around for all these years And I never got to that place again because, you know, that meditation practice was not – that experience and that technique was not – like it was – it happened almost as a fluke. And inside Vedic meditation, because it's been practiced for thousands of years, (laughs) it's very systematic, it's very reliable, and it's very reliably enjoyable too. So find something that you enjoy, because if you enjoy doing it, you will definitely have a better chance at sticking to it and also making it a priority. Like most of my executives say to me, like, I don't have, I'm so busy, I can't afford not to meditate because I feel like I operate with a lame brain if I'm not fresh and I don't have that reset. That's a beautiful mindset shift that you can't afford not to not yeah. I can't spare that 20 minutes it's like I can't not spare it because it the benefits it provides yeah logistically do you recommend people sit down and close their eyes like in a chair lay down like I'm always curious about this because some people yeah like, don't stand it yeah. won't work well <laughs> some people swear <laughs> by like they're like well I sit in a chair because my back hurts but like some people like sit but that can be uncomfortable too like so what do you recommend 
Yeah, so different styles of meditation will promote different types of um, resting positions. Um, I can tell you what works really well for Vedic meditation, and it was a great relief to me after going to all these silent retreats where <laughs> literally like back support was a no-no. So in Vedic meditation, we say that a relaxed body can lead to a relaxed mind. And so if you are sitting like on a bolster in the middle of a room, right, with like with no support for your knees or your back or anything, um, the entire meditation is going to be like, wow, there are a lot of micro muscles in my back that I never knew existed, but right now are screaming at me during meditation. And so, um, you know, there are some styles of meditation like, oh, it's like you got to like be one with the pain and just, you know, be okay with it because if you can be one with your back pain, you can be one with, I don't know, pain outside <laughs> of life or something. <laughs> In Vedic meditation, we're like, go have your back pain when you're like, I don't know, like doing the Murph at your CrossFit gym or something. Like save the back pain for that. Inside meditation, just be relaxed. Because when you can relax your body, you can relax your mind. And also when you sit upright, you're also cultivating a very specific, unique consciousness state called Turiya in Sanskrit, in Sanskrit which um, has a very physiologically restorative aspect to, to your mind and your body as well. So what I would say is that if you're going to go with a meditation technique, like follow the technique to a T, right? Especially ones that have like some type of longevity or history, you know, like techniques that have been around for at least a few hundred years <laughs> is good. And follow it to a T. You know, I think sometimes because of like the, the age of the internet and the age of, you know, like everyone is an expert in everything, we just kind of like cherry pick, like, well, I kind of like the sound of this, but I really like to lay down. But then I, you know, I also like to drink this. But, you know, find a technique, find a teacher that you really connect with and follow it to a T because then you can actually collect the research and be like a good researcher to know whether or not that technique works for you. You mentioned earlier how companies are kind of talking more about well-being and making that shift to support their people. And I think that's so valuable. And I think a big piece of that starts with internally on your teams and how you can you as a leader or you as a peer help support your own people. But do you have any insight or thoughts onto how companies or people leaders can support their teams well-being and wellness, whether that's a meditation routine or workout routine, therapy, anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's opening up the conversation. You know, there's, um, I think I, I remember in the podcast that I listened to you on, I think you said something that I so resonated with, which is like, I firmly believe that we're the same people at work as we are outside of work and like wholeheartedly agree with that. And I think the more um, companies and employers can see their employees as whole humans, the more you're going to cultivate, um, you know, that, that great sort of aspect of, of care and relationship and it's also really good for the bottom line too. It helps with retention and, you know, happy humans equal happy employees. And if you are a happy human and you decide that that company is not the right place for you as an employer, 
you want to really celebrate that too, right? Because you're like, if you don't want to be here, it's probably the best that we find somebody who really does want to be here too. And I think so many times employers and employees have this kind of tension, which is like, you know, we don't really want to know how you are in other aspects of your life. We just want you to kind of show up. Um, and so we, I see this conversation change really, really dramatically. And what we find is that for companies who bring in these, what I call like very robust meditation programs, like Vedic meditation, it's like incredible for the bottom line because unproductive employees and employees who are fighting overwhelm and fatigue and insomnia and anxiety are not productive employees and they are so susceptible to burnout. And we just see that like company culture um, is improved. We see dollars improve. It's like, it's, it's, it's truly like a win, win, win for everyone. Um, and I just love that part about my, my work in corporate too. I agree. It's so interesting to think, because I feel like even when I started my career, it wasn't a topic of conversation. It was like work is work. And you kind of draw that line between your personal life and your, your home life or whatever you brought in the door when you, you came to work that day, but it's so unrealistic to turn that off. We can't come to work. I don't, I'm not, not a mom when I'm at work. I'm not, not a spouse or a sister. Like that. You know, this whole, this whole person that you're bringing there, you can't just go and turn that off. It's not realistic. Um, so to be able to to cultivate that and that wellness, like you said, it, it helps the bottom line. It, if you have healthier, happier people, you're going to get more productive results in the end. And I, yeah. I think that's so refreshing to to hear that shift from companies. I've loved our conversation so much today. I could keep talking all day, but I want to wrap <laughs> it up with, with one final question. And that's, what yes. is the biggest takeaway from your career thus far? My biggest takeaway from my from my career thus far is is kindness goes a long way. And um, when I think about all of the pivot points in my career, um, I really think about the relationships that I've built. And there hasn't been one part of my career that 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 hasn't helped. That there hasn't been a single part in my career where somebody hasn't come down and like offered their hand to bring me up that next into that next rung of the ladder. And I think it's this type of giving and kindness that that you're doing on this podcast of like providing all this like amazing these like amazing conversations and lessons learned so we can all help each other. You know, it's um it really takes a tribe for for us to continue to live really vibrantly and um you know, we never really ever regret being kind, do we? And especially in corporate environments, I think that is that is so valuable. And it's something that um, I think is a real superpower and a huge boon to all of us. That's a beautiful sentiment to end on. Where can people connect with you, follow your work, and learn more about you, Susan? Uh, you can find me on my website at meditatewithsusan.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the First 10 Years Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Susan and all of the guest conversations I've brought you so far this year. I can't wait to be back in 2024 with more solo episodes and more guest conversations. I'm really excited for for what's ahead and all of the the great wisdom and stories that we're going to hear. 
As I mentioned, I'll be off next week to celebrate Christmas with my family and taking some time to hopefully relax and recharge as much as you can um, in the holiday season with a three-year-old at home. But um, I'm so excited to be back on January 1st with a new episode. If you've been liking these conversations and you've been following along for this journey, I would love if you could leave a rating and review wherever you're listening. It really helps other people find this podcast and it really means the world to me and is the best way to show your support for this podcast. Um, you can also follow along at the first 10 years podcast on Instagram. There's some great quotes on there. There's snippets from our conversations, some videos. So be sure to check that out for the most up-to-date information on the podcast. You can also reach out via email at the first 10 years podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. How are you liking the podcast? Do you have any feedback? Do you have any guests you want to have on? Do you want to be a guest? Um, please reach out. I'm so excited to to learn more and to hear from all of you. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for being along with me for this journey this year. This has been such a passion project for me and something I've wanted to do for so long. So the fact that you are here listening and supporting really means the absolute world to me. And I'm so excited to continue this journey next year. So hopefully it's only going to get better and brighter from here. So I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. I hope you have a relaxing um, or celebratory new year, and I will be back in two weeks. Bye.